If you have a Bible, I'm going to borrow this music stand here. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter, and we're going to be looking at the first several verses of 2 Peter. We're in a series here uh, where we've been talking about uh, how does change happen in our lives? How How do we participate with the Lord in the gifts that He has given us that we might know Him and walk with Him. And, and the passage we're going to read in just a second, I'm going to have my friend Quinn here read this, um, uh, is, uh, gets into this. But, but we've been unpacking this over the last several weeks of what does it look like for us to engage with and to participate uh, with the Lord in the spiritual blessings that He gives us as His people. So Quinn, come on up here. And uh, Quinn's going to read the passage. Oh, you can just, yeah, sure. Mike Russell, this is from the first chapter, Second Peter, starting at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brother affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Quinn. So today we've been we've been working through that last section there, where he's he's saying, okay, because God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness, and He's done this so that you could live a life of participating with Him in these blessings that He's given you. What does that look like? And here here he begins to say, all right, so so then because this is true, because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, called you to participate with Him in this life. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We talked about a few weeks ago. We talked about that being obedience or goodness. Uh, and, and, and add to your goodness knowledge. And then today we come add to your knowledge self-control. So we're going to talk about self-control. Which I love because, for one, th- this just if you're, if you're somebody who's kind of skeptical about the church, you're probably thinking some version of course we're going to talk about self-control. That's what Christians talk about. They talk about self-control. They talk about getting in line, doing everything right, managing all the details of your sin, and rules, 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 rules. And I think that what Peter is getting at here really turns that understanding of self-control on its head. Uh, and so we're going, to be, we're going to be getting into that. But, but let's just take a minute and, you know, self-control is a call from Scripture that you see in a number of places. And if you just take the word self-control and sort of break it up, um, what are we looking at here? you got the word self, right? So you, me, me. Control that, right? That's what he's saying. Control you. That's something that Scripture calls you to, which should really bring to mind the question, okay, what is it about us, what is it about me that I need to control? Why? Why? Because it's implying I'm out of control, or I tend to be out of control, I can be out of control. You've done this, right? You've, You've 
written an email after 1 a.m. that's full of passion and intensity and and then you've hit send only to wake up in the morning and think, what have I done? Why did I do that? Why did I use email? Right? It's good that you're laughing on that. Or why did I eat an entire pizza? Why'd I do that? That wasn't a good idea. I didn't think about it. It just happened. It was a whole pizza and then there was no pizza. And I ate it. All of it. This has been a pretty solid year for celebrity meltdowns, right? What's going on with that? It struck me as I was thinking about this. I was thinking, okay, you can have this actor or this musician who has this body of work that they build for decades. And people kind of know them. But you melt down one weekend And that one meltdown catapults you to a level of fame that your entire body of work together didn't even come close to. What's up with that? I think what's up with that is that's not a statement so much about the celebrity who melted down. That's a statement about the people who love to hear about celebrities who melted down. That's a statement about us. And it's not because we look at the celebrity and we say, How in the world did that ever happen to that guy? It's that we look at him and we understand how in the world that happened to that guy. And it happened on this stage. And we know that we have it in us to do the same thing. Given the right circumstances, that could be me. What's going on here? What's going on, this call to self-control, is that we're in a battle You're in a battle right now. There's a war going on inside of you. There's a war going on inside of me. It's happening. For Christians, it's this battle between the Spirit of God that lives in us and our flesh. And it's just raging. Paul says in Romans 7, I'm going to read this in a second, but there's this call. Christian, watch yourself. Don't think that you're beyond the reach of just going completely out of control. It can happen to you. Don't get so confident in your own ability that you don't think that you'll never fall like somebody else because that's the moment when you're weak. That's the moment when you're just so likely to go ahead and just and just collapse in on yourself. Paul writes about this struggle, this battle, this war going on inside of him in Romans 7, and it's such a beautiful thing. By the way, I love Scripture. I I mean, obviously, I'm a pastor. I love the Bible. One of the things that I love about the Bible is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible or not, and and a lot of us kind of can think that the Bible is a rule book, that it's just this list of things that God wants us to do and not do, and I need to read my Bible so I know how I'm supposed to act. We're going to do business with that today. But one of the things that I love about Scripture is there are places in Scripture where things are articulated in ways that just make you think, wait, the, the Lord really understands me. He understands what goes on inside my heart. This is one of those passages for me that just lights me up. I read this and I just think, Lord, thank you so much that in your providence you put this passage in the canon of your holy word, that it would, it would be there for us to read and to understand, that it, would, that, it would, that it would take the lead blanket of guilt off of my heart and help me understand that there's this battle going on inside of me. So here's what he says, Romans 7. He's talking about the struggle. We know the law is spiritual. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. And I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. It's the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law then that, I want to do, that, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's drawing a conclusion. I find this to be a law, like a scientific law, that when I want to do right, evil is kind of always right there. He goes on. I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the Apostle Paul, who was as profoundly instrumental in the the establishment and the shaping of the early church as anyone on earth. And he's talking about, I got this war in my heart about the things that I want to do that I don't do and the things that I don't want to do and I just seem to not be able to help myself. I I just keep doing them. Can you relate to this? Can you relate to what he's saying, that war of, I just don't understand why because there's that, that sense of I don't want to do sin X, you know? And, and it's real, you really don't. But you do. But you don't want to, but you do. So maybe you do want to, but you don't want to. You, it's confusing, but you, you're tracking with me, right? That's the confusion that's going on. I love that Paul is giving us these words as a man who has already told us, look, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. He says there's nothing that will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. So he's not talking about this battle going on inside of him as though the stakes here are whether he ends up being a child of God in the end or not. He's not talking about losing his salvation, but what he's talking about is he's saying, look, there's this war going on inside. It's not a battle for my soul, but it's a battle for my day-to-day conduct. You better believe it is. And because of this battle, Scripture calls us, Paul, Peter, Jesus, to measured lives of self-control. Self-control is a tactical fighter in this battle with the flesh. Now, I imagine if I were in your shoes, I'd be thinking, I know something about self-control. I have strategies. I I know that that there are certain things that that I can do that are effective and certain things that I do that that lead to being out of control. But let's dig into this. Do we really understand what it means to participate with the divine through the spiritual gift of self-control? Paul calls it one of the fruit of the Spirit, that this is something the Spirit gives us. It's in us because of God's presence in our lives. How do we engage with it? There's a distinction that we have to make when we come to self-control. Because a lot of us, let's just talk about accountability relationships, because I think that's a framework we can use that we can uh, understand. As you have a relationship with somebody or a group of people, and part of the definition of that relationship is we're going to hold each other accountable to avoid certain temptations and to practice certain spiritual disciplines, but what happens is a lot of times when we're thinking about self-control and we're thinking about accountability, the primary question in front of us is three letters. How? How do I practice self-control? How do I, how am I held accountable? 
right? That's the question. What the gospel calls us to is, what, what if there's a different question, though, that you need to be asking before you're asking how? And that's the question, why? Why would self-control be valuable? Why would accountability with other people be an important thing for you? If all we're answering is the question, how, we're, we're in trouble. And we're going to fail. I've been in accountability groups. Have you? Any of you been in a group, accountability group? We're here. We tell each other our sins, and we say, I don't want to do this sin anymore, uh, and I want you guys all to ask me about that, right? And you can understand why we get into groups like this. It makes a certain measure of sense because Scripture calls us to self-control where we're taking measures to avoid sin. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole. See, <laughs> it's hyperbole. We'd all be handless, you know. Um, but the point is, is there's a spirit behind that statement. Look, take measures to preemptively avoid sin. We should do this. This is a good thing. This is a form of adding knowledge to obedience. We talked about that last week. If I know that I get into trouble in certain parts of town, I shouldn't go to those certain parts of town. If I know that these two or three, um, uh, you know, scenarios tend to lead me into temptation and failing in sin, I should avoid those. Or if, if I know that, you know, if you're somebody who's on the road a lot, you sort of build in, okay, here's ways that I can be in touch with people who are asking me important questions, even when I'm a long way away from home. And this is important for us to do, because as Joel's dad used to say, wherever you go, you go too, right? And you bring with you all that stuff, all those temptations, all those things. And at these crucial moments of decision, when the temptation is there, a lot of the work of deciding has already happened. But if all we're thinking about is the how question, we're in trouble. Let me give you an example from my own life. In my 20s, I was in an accountability group with a bunch of guys where we held each other accountable about guy things that guys struggle with. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about too, probably. Um, but we paired up. This was our framework. We paired up. And we all went around the group and we confessed, okay, here's the sin that I want accountability with. Here's the struggle in my life that I want accountability with. And then we paired up with other guys and the rule was if you... If you gave in to that temptation, you had to pay your partner $50. Okay? I'm 20. $50 is a lot of money. And the thinking is $50 is a higher price than the pleasure of my sin warrants. $50 it is. Want to hear something funny? That accountability group quickly became a group of guys who were trading $50 bills with each other. You know, I mean, that's kind of what it was. It, was just, it wasn't costing anybody anything anymore because do you still have that 50 I gave you? You know, I'm going to need that back. Um, and, well, okay, so the second time I had to pay, uh, I didn't have $50 as a seminary student. I'm broke. What I did have was I had an autographed baseball bat by a current famous major league player. 
That's what I had. And I gave that bat to my friend as a payment for my sin. What was I doing? What was I doing? What are we doing in, in, in situations like that? What is it that we're trying to do? I'll tell you what we were trying to do. We were trying to focus on the how of self-control without thinking about the why, without thinking about, well, what is it in me, not only that I should be doing, but what is it in me that thinks in these moments, I won't even call them moments of weakness, that just believes that $50 is nothing compared to the satisfaction that my sin gives me. Our, our, our terrible mistake was that we grossly underestimated the price of pleasure. You with me? I'm telling you that because it was insane. It was insane what we were doing. We were trying to manage sin by attaching a price to it. Which one is an affront to the gospel because what we're saying is I will pay for my sins. Christ has done that for me. There is no debt against me and my sin. I owe no one anything when it comes to the debt of my sin. Christ has paid for it all. But the other thing that's so crippling about that was to discover $50 isn't enough. And neither's $100. And neither's $200. And neither's an autographed baseball bat that's probably worth $400. There is no price that's worth enough. But what happened that was so insidious and sinister and so heartbreaking is what did happen was that we all began to regard each other as people that we did not want to be really known by. I'm giving you $50, and I'm still tempted. All of us in that group. What happens? We begin to look at each other in this relationship that we're in, and we draw this conclusion. This isn't working. And when we're in relationships where we're holding each other accountable, and our categories are working and not working, guess what we are? We're legalists. We're legalists because we're looking at our relationships and what we're saying is, I'm in a relationship with you because of what I want to get out of it and what I want to get out of it is really for me. It's for my conscience and I'm still struggling with this and you're supposed to be liberating me from that struggle. Therefore, my relationship with you isn't working anymore. That's so sad. And the reason it's so sad is because those relationships there are just built on the whole fulcrum of the how. How can I be delivered from this body of flesh? This, this, what would Paul say? How, who will deliver me from this body of death? Apparently not my friends. <laughs> and apparently I didn't deliver them either. So, what drives you? What drives you to get control over your life? Because all of us want control over our lives. None of us want to just be out of control train wrecks all the time. And so we hear this call to self-control and, and, and there's something in us that says, 
This is good. This is good. Now we're getting somewhere. I need to, that's what I do. I need to bring discipline to my life. I need to get in, in line. I need to get everything. I need to make these rules and have these people who know these questions to ask me that are good questions. Don't get me wrong. They're good questions. But, but I need these people to ask me this question all the time because it's going to keep me from sinning. And our whole approach then to self-control has become nothing more than sin management. That's the objective. Uh, it's, a re- it's a system that I have in place to manage sin. That's it. I'm stuck on the question, how? And what happens if this is the road, if my path towards self-control, if the end of it, if the objective is don't sin anymore, don't sin anymore, don't sin anymore, it's a path that's going to lead to death. And there are these two guardrails that you're going to be bumping up against, and you're going to go off into the ditch. The first guardrail is this guardrail of legalism. I don't want to commit this sin anymore. So I'm going to surround myself with rules, with, with, with just this structure of accountability, and I'm just going to make sure that I just don't ever fall into this temptation again. When really the only thing that we can do, when that's what our objective is, is to stop sinning, is to kill that desire. And so we begin that process of I'm just going to start killing the desire. I'm going to start killing it. I'm going to find ways to make sure that that desire isn't in me anymore. But what if it's not the desire that's the problem? What if it's the perversion of the desire that's the problem? What if the desire is a God-given one that's been just so corrupted by the brokenness in you? Then what? Is it right? Is it good? Is it the way we should go to say, still, I'm going to kill the desire. I'm going to kill it. And I'm just going to become a shell of a man. What happens then? I'll tell you what happens. We give sin a price, $50. We have a goal, don't do that anymore. And then what we develop that makes us feel good is a good run. You know, six months, nine months, four days, you know? You develop this run, and you think, this is working, it's working. But then what happens? The run ends, right? And then what are you left with? Starting over? The other, the other guardrail that you're bumping up against, and this one's a lot weaker, and it just sends you into the ditch fast, is the guardrail of what theologians call antinomianism, which is another word for no law, or cheap grace. This is, the, this is the ditch of, well, I tried. I put everything in place that I knew to put in place. I disciplined myself. I killed my desire. I invited my friends into this, and I still fell. The point that I was missing, the enlightenment that has come to me now is that I'm forgiven. Why should I care? Who cares what I do? I'm forgiven. It's all been covered by Jesus. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to go on sinning, and, and, and I'm never going to bother with accountability again. And in this place, now we're looking at each other with this kind of self-righteous, enlightened sort of idea of, oh, you're still trying accountability. You don't need to worry about that because you're forgiven. You should just live the life the way that you want to live it, and don't let your conscience be bothered at all by anything because, because, because Jesus has, has paid for this. Does this lead to life? That's miserable too. There's a reason that Paul calls us and Peter calls us to self-control. This is a road to death because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to clear my conscience. 
The gospel clears my conscience. I don't clear my conscience. The gospel is saying, it isn't up to you to clear your conscience. This is God's work in you. If sin management is the goal of my self-control, it's a road to death. It's a road to certain failure, to discouragement, to brokenheartedness. You're just, just to, to guilt upon guilt upon guilt. So we need to ask this question. Well, wait, though. Why does it matter that I would live a measured self-control life? Why? Why should I live this life? Why does that matter? What motivates me? What's the purpose? What's at the end? What should be driving me? Is it just sin management or is there something better, something more beautiful, something greater that I should be striving for, that I should be looking toward? And the answer is, yeah, there is. You were made for a relationship with the maker and lover of your soul who's giving you everything that you need to know him, to walk with him, to participate in this life with him in a way to where you're living your life in a Godward direction. Marriage is an illustration of this, right? That when you're married, it's not that you just say the papers are signed, the deal is set, you're my wife, and then you go live a different, you know, and then you live in two separate cities and you do two separate sets of things. There's this call to be living in this continual face-to-face, growing in our intimacy and love and knowledge of each other. That's why we're called to self-control, is because we're so prone to be out of control, And what the call to self-control is, is look at me. Look at me. Focus on me. Peter's calling us to this, to to growing and delighting in the promises and the knowledge of Christ and participating with him in this and all these spiritual blessings. Road one is just this endless march towards self-salvation through sin management that you're going to fail at. But this other road, the road of the gospel, is this path that is deeper into an understanding of who Christ is and who he's made us. We don't need to regret our sin if we're in Christ. Because no condemnation, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Self-control isn't about keeping a temperamental God from becoming angry. Self-control is about loving and delighting in the God who set me free from the power of sin and death and made me to know and to love him and to rest my conscience in what he has done and who he has made me. See, here's the thing. We think that if we're in accountability relationships and we set up all these rules in those sane moments when we're like, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm really going to do this, it's going to be great, that's going to carry over into those moments when we're alone and nobody's watching and, 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 and the temptation and the weakness is there. But here's the thing. You're always going to do what you believe is going to satisfy you the most deeply. That's what you're going to do. You're going to do what will satisfy the hungriest voice in your heart. And this call to self-control is not a call to stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You guys over here, stop it. It's not it. It's a call toward the Father, toward the Son who loves us and calls us His beloved. What does it look like? What does self-control look like? It looks like what you think it looks like. It looks like discipline. It looks like practice. It looks like restraint. It looks like disciplining ourselves. It looks like aspiring toward godliness to do all these things. But it also is in the context of saying, yeah, those are, those are the how, but the why is what's really, really motivating me. 
what Scripture calls us to, and the reason the Bible isn't just a book of, not, a book of rules, is because what Scripture calls us to isn't, you break a lot of rules, you need to start keeping a lot of rules. It's much bigger than that. What Scripture is saying to us is, <laughs> you were made for an intimate, fully known, face-to-face relationship with the Creator of heaven and earth. Everything beautiful that you've ever seen in your life in nature, God made. He orchestrated, he put together the phenomenon. That's the one who made you and said, yeah, you're, you're the crowning achievement. You're the one that bears my image. And I love you and I want a relationship with you and I've given you my son that we would have this relationship. That's what scripture's calling us to. There's a pastor named Tim Keller in New York City who, who tells the story about uh, when he was in college. <clears throat> he was a... Uh, I think either a business major or pre-law or something like that. He was, going to be a, 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 he was going to be a successful and wealthy person was the objective. And he had this humanities class that required him to uh, go to a symphony that was playing Mozart. And he was upset uh, in part because he, you know, the tickets were expensive and all that stuff. But Mozart was a means to an end, you see, because he had to go to Mozart in order to get a passing grade in the class in order to get the degree, in order to get the job, in order to get the money. You see how that works? So Mozart then was a way to get money, is what he would say. Mozart was a way to get money. He said, but what happened was, he fell in love with Mozart. And so now that he has the job, he says, now it's it's, it's upside down now. Now money is a way to get Mozart. Now I, I spend money because I love Mozart. Where before it was, I go to Mozart because I love the idea of having money. You see, something happened there. And that was that he came to love and discover something that was beautiful and something that was powerful and something that was moving. This is what the gospel does. This is not about rules. It's not about just getting to that end where you're always obeying and always doing the right thing, and that's it. It's about this relationship, this eternal relationship, this relationship that will prevail over every other relationship in your life for eternity. That's what he's calling us to. Participate with the Lord in this. He's given you these things that you would walk with him in this. And so it's not as simple as just saying, well, I'm just going to make 10 rules and do this because we change a lot. Circumstances change a lot. Randy Drawn uh, from downtown there, he, he was talking about uh, this is kind of like holding a teacup that's filled to the edge on a, on a ship at sea. That if your objective is, is not to let anything spill and to control that teacup, you're constantly moving it around. You're constantly doing it because, because everything is changing around you. Self-control, it looks like that. It's not as simple as saying, here's 10 surefire ways to never sin again. We're constantly engaged with the Lord. What is going on in me right now? What is going on in my situation right now? It's always changing, always something new. But the gospel is saying, but listen, you don't have to worry though. You don't have anything to fear here. If you mess up, if you spill it, if you fail. See, that's the thing. The gospel says, You are invited by the Lord to be honest about where you're weak. It's not like Jesus doesn't know where you're weak. He knows where you're weak. Are you kidding? He knows better than you do where you're weak. But he's saying in the gospel where there's no condemnation, where your sins have been paid for, atoned for, 
where the wrath of God toward your sin has been satisfied in Christ, you don't have to fear the retribution of God when you discover a weakness in your own heart. It's been dealt with. It's been dealt with. And the gospel says, it's okay. It's okay. You can examine and explore honestly before the Lord where you're weak, where you fall into temptation. The gospel says, look at your lust. Look at your greed. Look at your apathy. Look at your selfishness. Look at your ego. What lies within you? You can see it without condemnation. Why? Because self-control and everything else that you need for life and godliness, you didn't give yourself. God gave you to equip you, to know him, to walk with him, to participate with him. That's what Peter said in the very beginning. God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Self-control is one of those things. It's this Godward disposition where we say, Lord, help me understand why I'm not controlled. Show me who I am. Make me a person who cares to do battle with the areas of my life that stop me from living an effective and fruitful life. Because this is a gift from the Spirit, because my righteousness doesn't come from a good run of faultlessness on my part, I don't have anything to fear. The gospel sets me free to deal honestly with the Lord about those places where I lack control. And it does for you too. Why would you be called to self-control? And the answer is, is because you're called to an intimate relationship with the maker and lover of your soul. What Peter is saying to us here in this is, where's your satisfaction? Where are you most deeply satisfied? What satisfies you? And then he calls us, participate with the Lord in these things that he has given you, that he may be your satisfaction. Pray with me. Lord, I, I, I know that in a room like this, um, the range of things that would come to our minds when we think about areas where we're weak or where we're ashamed, areas where we stumble and fall, areas where we want accountability uh, or where we feel like we have just catastrophically failed. Um, for some of us, they're, they're, they're pretty petty. We, we just don't understand. We don't, we don't see much uh, substance or depth in, in the darkness of our own hearts. We, we just, we're blind to that. For others of us, we're, we're um, just under a, a million tons of regret all the time. We feel condemned. Uh, we feel like if, if people really knew the stuff that we struggled with or the things that we had done, that certainly nobody would want to know us uh, or walk with us or have anything to do with us. Uh, Father, I believe that both of those are... Um, false uh, ways to understand um, the brokenness in us. Lord, you, you have responded to our brokenness even when we didn't know that we needed you to. You have given us your son to atone for our sins, to call us into relationship with him, and to set us free from the law of sin and death. Lord, would you make us a people who when we pray through what it means to be self-controlled, when we take steps to live measured and disciplined lives, 
that you would keep before us always the question of why. Why would we want that? Why would we want to do that? Father, would you deliver us from the tyranny of lives of sin management? Um, Father, that is a road to death. We can't manage our own sin. That's what the cross tells us, is we couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. We couldn't do it in the past. We can't do it now. But Lord, thank you that you have satisfied every debt of our sin through your Son. Lord, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for the work that you're doing here. I thank you for the way that you're speaking to us through your word and ask that you would continue to give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.